Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We are rounding third base in our Future Church series. This is our second to last teaching. Uh, For today, we are talking about how we are called to be a community of hospitality in a culture of polarization. I've heard it said multiple times that sociologists are saying this is the most divided our country has been since the Civil War. And you don't have to be a sociologist or an expert in anthropology to recognize the tension that has been building up for years, but has definitely come to a head the past couple with the pandemic and the social and civil unrest and politics. And we're sitting here kind of in the wake of that, some of us still feeling that in our bodies and in our minds and wrestling through how to move forward and how will we move forward, um, not as a nation, but as followers of Jesus. What's our role in this when it seems like things are so divided? A recent poll was done said that 60% of voters think members of the opposite party constitute a threat to America. More than 40% would call the people of the opposing party evil, and 20% think they are animals. Another academic study found that hostility to the opposition party and its candidates has now reached a level where loathing motivates voters more than loyalty. Just think about that. We live in a society where people are motivated in their political allegiance more because of what they hate than what they're loyal to. And that's just one sector of society. And you think about just kind of the relational piece of what's happened through isolation, staying at home, social distancing. Andrew Sullivan, who writes for the New York Magazine, recently talked about a recent scientific study on rats uh, that they did uh, put together a combination of water and morphine in their cage. And what they found is that the rats were five times more likely Uh, to drink that unhealthy substance if they were by themselves versus if they were in community. And so you can kind of pick your poison, if you will. But because we've been in isolation, because we've been removed from community, uh, we have found ourselves running towards things that aren't healthy, whether that's social media, whether that's um, an unhealthy amount of watching the news, whether it's these things that kind of feed into our fear, feed into our polarization, into our division. And what's interesting is psychologists actually have a study on the psychology of enemies. What happens when you uh, find someone else to be a threat and what's going on psychologically? And they point out to three things of the purpose of enemy psychology. Number one, it gives us someone to blame. It does something within us and we don't have to take responsibility and there's someone else we can cast blame to. Number two, it gives us a sense of control. What's interesting is even when the enemy is easily identified, uh, something like um, ISIS, something of an opposite political party, something that feels dangerous, it actually puts the person more at ease when 
and sense of control when they can identify the enemy. And thirdly, and I think probably most poignant to our time, is that it gives us a tribe to belong to. I mean, it, it may feel like more of an anti-tribe or an anti-community, and it may feel toxic, but it's better than being alone. And I just think this is just kind of the, the cultural makeup that we're in, whether it's the physical and social distancing, whether it's the political unrest, whether it's the psychology of enemies that, that's being taking place. We are finding ourselves where families have been divided. Churches, many of my friends who are pastors have witnessed people who've been a part of their church for decades leave. And they've noted things like masks or vaccines or BLM or all of these things that have taken families or even communities of faith and have created division where there wasn't that in decades. What is going on? And does Jesus have anything to say about the climate that we're in right now. And what is interesting is he has a lot to say. Now, what's important to point out is this isn't the only time in human history where it seems like there has been kind of this polarization tinderbox that's about ready to just be lit altogether. Uh, think about Jesus's time. Two thirds of Israel at that time were still in exile. Only a third of Israel had come back uh, was living in the land that God had promised them. They were underneath Roman rule, but they weren't the first um, kind of world power that they were dominated by. They were dominated by the Greeks before then. Before then, it was the Persians and then the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They had lived in a series of these strong world powers who had dominated them and oppressed them. And during the time of Rome, many historians think that the the that Rome was taxing the Jewish people, upwards of 80 to 90% of your income. So in an agrarian culture, you're a farmer. You have to provide 80 to 90% of your grain over to Rome. Now imagine what that would do to a people who feel displaced from their home, mistreated by the dominant power of the day, and they're not even able to afford uh, the kind of food that they're wanting to do, but it, it gets worse. Rome would employ people of that region. So in the Judeo countryside, they would employ Jewish people to collect those taxes. So we get the term tax collector or tax farmer. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, before he starts following him, is one of these tax collectors. And the only way you'd make money as a tax collector is you would charge a fee on top of that. So let's just say Rome is charging the the Jewish people, 80%. And they come and they say like, hey, Matthew, we want you to work for us. You're not going to have to pay the taxes that they're going to pay. Matter of fact, you're going to make a lot of money. And then he would start charging his own people 10% on top of what Rome was, leaving them only 10% to live on. And what was even worse than that is they would employ the Roman guard to enforce those, tax, um, those taxes upon them. So easy enough to say, Thing, those were the bottom of the social totem pole within Jewish society. There was, it wasn't just like, like a mild dislike. It was an intense hatred and loathing to the people who had sold out their people for the Roman Empire, were exploiting their own people for their own personal gain, and would 
and would exercise their authority to the point of death because of, by the Roman guards. And so there's that side of the camp. And one of these people becomes Jesus' disciple. Along with those 12 disciples, if you look at Mark chapter 2, is someone named Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots are an interesting subgroup of people. They are people who believe that God's kingdom would come only by force. And so the, the Aramaic word that was used for them were the Sakari, which literally means daggermen. And so they would hide daggers underneath their robe and they would go into um, highly populated areas and they would literally take the life of Roman officials and sometimes just Roman people altogether and then slip into the crowd, kind of this ancient guerrilla warfare thing. And they believe that they were doing the will of God. And so it's, it's fascinating to think that in, within Jesus' disciples, there was a zealot and a tax collector. Could not be more polar opposite of thinking of someone who would have been um, a hitman for ISIS sitting next to a Navy SEAL. Both people had lost uh, people as a, as a way to, um, in their previous life, and they're sitting at the same table. So that in of itself is an interesting thing. But the question is, how, how did Jesus respond in such an intense and hostile environment? Let's look at one story in Luke chapter 19. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So chief tax collector, you can imagine just the kind of reputation he has. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, rightfully so, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now listen to verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now there is an interesting thread that is woven throughout the Gospels, and it's how much of Jesus' ministry is spent around a table spent around meals. Matthew's gospel um, cites 50 times where Jesus is mentioned with um, food. Um, in Luke's gospel, uh, it is over, I'm sorry, um, that's in uh, Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, it's over 90 times Jesus is mentioned with his ministry in regards to food. And the reason for that is because the table was central, not only to kind of ancient Mediterranean area, but it was central to the Jewish people. Let me give you a quick backstory. In 587 BC, so about 600 years before this moment, is the first time that um, Babylon takes over the temple and the temple is destroyed. Well, immediately the, the teachers of the law in that day are thinking about, well, how are we going to do sacrifices? How are we going to atone for sin? How are we going to... Um, are going to live out our sacred relationship to Yahweh. And so what they did 
is they turned the home into the temple. And so the home became the new temple, the table became the new altar, the father became the new priest, and the meal became the the new sacrifice. And it was out of this order, Ezra being one of these priests during the exile that was revered, out of Ezra's descendants became this group of people called the Pharisees. And it's important for us to remember that Pharisees, although kind of have a negative rap in the New Testament, began as this really good thing. They were calling people towards holiness. They were calling people towards faithfulness uh, to uh, worshiping Yahweh around the table. And there was this belief within the Pharisees that if all of Israel for 24 hours could keep the Torah without sinning, that God would, would show up, reverse uh, the curse that was on them, and bring blessing again. And so in order to do that, they began to bring these traditions around the Torah that would create laws almost as buffers so you wouldn't actually break the Torah. So if you don't break this law, you need to break this law, at least you're not close to the Torah law. And so there was this zealous movement of people trying to make people regain a sense of purity so that God's blessing would come back. Well, one of those things that would make people pure or unpure, clean or unclean, was who was let at the table. Why? Well, because it was the new altar. The house was the new temple. And so who you ate with, um, theologians call this boundary lines. And so who you had dinner with, who you let into your house, and who you didn't let into your house mattered the same way there was boundary lines of who was allowed to be in the temple, what you had to do to enter in the temple. And so Richard Beck in his book, Unclean, talks about this, this thing that Jesus began to do of, of kind of undoing and deconstructing people's view of what was clean and unclean and who was allowed to become into the table and who wasn't. Tax collectors were never allowed to become at the table, which is why people were so upset that Jesus would spend time sitting at a table, a holy place, giving his approval to someone like that. And so Richard Beck in his book, Unclean, says this, Jesus is deconstructing the purity tradition Jesus redefines pure and unclean as failures of mercy, as failures of the heart. Jesus wants to remove notions of of purity from the social sphere to, in effect, eliminate social moral disgust from the life of Israel. For mercy is impossible when social moral disgust is operative. What a word for today. Mercy is impossible when socio-moral disgust is operative. Another theologian, Scott Barchi, says this, it would be difficult to overestimate the significance of table fellowship for the culture of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Mealtimes were far more than the occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at the table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony ritually symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, Betrayal and unfaithfulness to anyone who had shared at the table was considered particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, to someone who was estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Another one says this, Jesus got himself killed by who he shared meals with. And this is why him sharing a meal with Zacchaeus or Matthew or 
the, the, the woman caught in, um, or the prostitute who comes at his, te- um, his feet while he's at Simon the Pharisee's house, all of these stories on the table are so provocative. And, and we read that, we're kind of like, yeah, that's right. We need, you know, but I think for us, we have to remember it's because we don't have tax collectors. I mean, most of us probably don't have a great relationship with the IRS, but that is nothing compared. So here's what I'd like for you to imagine. Who is the moral scum in your heart? Who is the person who you would never want to associate with? The person who you find is just absolutely unworthy of honor. And those are the people. That is the person Jesus tended to have his meals with. Notice at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, he looks at him and he says, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. He's welcomed back into the family. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now that phrase, the Son of Man came, is only used two times in Luke's Gospel, which is kind of like a hyperlink. You have to tie those two occasions together. So we have one instance which says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The other time, if you you flip left in your Bible to Luke chapter 7, it says this, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, there's that phrase, eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, pointed out that that first phrase, son of man came to seek and save the lost is Christ's mission. The second phrase, the son of man came eating and drinking is Christ's methodology. Think about that. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. How did he do it? By eating and drinking. I mean, this is sharing a meal is one of the most powerful witnesses we have to the world. Not just what we eat, but who we eat with matters. This isn't isn't some infomercial to hang out more with your friends and eat more. This is us calling us to approaching the table and our fellowship and who we share meals with to think and to model ourselves like Jesus. Robert Kerr says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. The pastor just read that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunk. He he gets that reputation somehow. This is what he chose to do. I mean, the God of the universe coming incarnate in the flesh we have more documentation of him sitting around a table and sharing meals than we have really of him doing anything else. This is his core strategy is built around a table, which is why it's interesting at the end of Luke chapter 7 as it continues, there's an illustration how Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunk. He gets invited to this Pharisee's house named Simon. And while he's there, this woman who was a sinful woman, is kind of a nice way to say that she's a prostitute, she's a sex worker, comes in and she finds her way to his feet and begins to wipe his feet with her hair and her tears. And as this is going, Simon is just like 
if he was a prophet, he would know who's touching him. The uncleanliness that is coming to this, this makeshift altar of my table. And Peter, and sorry, and then Jesus goes and he tells him this parable. He answers his thoughts and he says, listen, moral of the story, he who has been forgiven loves. He's been forgiven little, loves little, but he has been forgiven much, loves much. And he says this in verse 44, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, it's hard to catch what's going on here, but this would have been a overwhelmingly embarrassing indictment on Simon. Because what Jesus is saying here, you are a lousy host. You failed welcoming me into your table. And here's the irony of the whole thing. He says, the woman is the host. She's the one who's anointed him, cleaned his feet, welcomed him with the kiss, all which would have been very normal things. And he flips the scriptures. This is what true godly hospitality is like. Paul picks up on the same thing in his letter to the Romans. He says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That's our, that's our command. That's our practice for the week. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. But listen to this. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Practice hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is philozenian. It's two Greek words put together. Philo means love. Xenos means stranger or foreigner. To love the foreigner. To love the stranger. Hospitality is the exact opposite of xenophobia. Christine DePaul in her book, Making Room, says hospitality is not optional for Christians, nor is it limited to those who are specially gifted for it. Francis Schaeffer says a compassionate, open home is part of Christian responsibility and should be practiced up to the level of capacity. One of the best books um, I've read on hospitality is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's written by Rosaria Butterfield, who has a really interesting story. She was a lesbian literature professor at Syracuse University whose specialty was postmodern critical theory. She was writing a book about how Bible-believing Christians are the great scourge upon the earth. But for research, she actually had to spend some time with Bible-believing Christians. After she wrote a scathing op-ed on Christians and patriarchy, a local pastor invited her over for dinner. Thus began a relationship 
um, of regular meals. Over time of going to this pastor and his family's house for meals, Rosaria Butterfield actually became a follower of Jesus. And what she realized is that the community that she had been longing for, the peace she had been longing for, actually all along was wrapped up within the Christian faith. But the only way it was revealed was through hospitality. Thus, her writing her book. She says this, Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflecting in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. And it's easy to hear um, Rosaria Butterfield's story and just to, to almost just almost feel like it's out of reach. Like, wow, that's, that's a radical story. I don't know if I could ever do something like that. So I want to just tell you a personal story. It's not, um, it's not overly dramatic, but for me, it actually changed my life. When I was 19 years old and I went off to college, um, I was there for a few days and it was my birthday. I didn't know a single person at this school. And there was a senior at the school by the name of Peter Henderson who um, had some high level of leadership at the school, incredibly brilliant. Um, I met him and he invited me. He's like, hey, there's some people going to hang out. Do you want to come? And I didn't have a car. I'm a freshman. And, and he drives me. And on the way home, if he finds out it's my birthday. And we're driving uh, through Pasadena. And he's like, he's like, it's your birthday. We should go to Cheesecake Factory. I'm like, what's, you know, what's that? He's like, what do you mean? And so he takes me to Cheesecake Factory in Pasadena to this guy he doesn't even know and just pays for my meal, pays for my dessert, honors me and celebrates me. And it was like this massive statement. Why is this senior hanging out with this freshman? And so I began to just go and knock on his door in his dorm. Um, a few months into my freshman year, I started battling depression. And I remember I'd go sit down with him and he had opened up his closet and he had this espresso machine and his favorite coffee beans, and he would just make me coffee, and we'd sit there, and we'd work through things, and it, it literally changed my emotional and mental health. It was so transformative, and we just continued this relationship. Even though he's only a few years older than me, I've always looked at him as this like mentor, this life-giving source for, my, for who I am, and before we planted the church, I remember meeting with him again, and I remember just being like, I don't know if I have what it takes. I, don't, I mean, I've only been in youth ministry. I don't know if this is going to work. And I remember him looking at me and just being like, you have everything you need inside of you to plant this church. And I began to weep because I didn't realize I needed someone to tell me that. And as I was getting writing this message on hospitality, I was just thinking about sitting in Peter's dorm room. He didn't have a nice table didn't even have a kitchen. He would just pour me a cup of coffee and he would let me talk about where I was. And, it, and it, I, I'm not over-exaggerated. It changed me. And I want to share that story because I just want to like 
demystify hospitality. You don't have to have this amazing house or this big table or these elaborate meals. You don't have to be an incredible chef. It's a posture of the heart. And if you have those things, great. But if you have a, a studio apartment, then what can that look like? If you need to meet someone for coffee, what does it look like to meet them with a heart of hospitality? Henry Nouwen in his book, Reaching Out, says this, In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past culture and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. Although many, we might even say most, strangers in this world become easily the victim of a fearful hostility, it is possible for men and women and obligatory for Christians to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. Hospitality is where strangers can cast off their strangeness. So this week, what I would encourage us to do as a church is to think about people in your life who feel estranged, people in your life who think differently than you, look differently than you, are in different circles and classes than you, and make room, make space. We have beautiful open tables going on. Many of them are filling up, but we need more, not from a programmatic side, just from a heart side. We need more people willing to open up their hearts, their homes, their schedules and calendars for people who don't have family, don't have relationship. And let it change not only them, let it change you. Sit with people, ask them questions. Francis Schaeffer, who I quoted earlier, him and his wife Edith, towards the end of their life, ended up uh, opening up their home in Switzerland and calling it La Abri, which is French for shelter. And it was literally a home that they'd welcome people who were skeptics just to come and live. And these are two incredibly brilliant intellectual people. And for them, the most powerful tool that could have been used in sharing the faith was not reason and logic, but hospitality. Last quote. Francis Shaver says, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ, do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. There is no place in God's world where there are no people who will come share a home as long as it's a real home. So let's, let's pray together. Let's ask God to give us insight and wisdom on what that can look like for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you came as a homeless, single rabbi, yet you hosted creation. You hosted humanity. Lord, thank you that you continue to do that, Lord God. In Revelation 3, it says, you stand at the door and knock, and he who would open his door, you'll come and eat with him. And Lord, thank you that you have been so hospitable to us. Help us mirror your hospitality towards those around us, Lord Jesus, especially in the polarizing culture that we find ourselves in? Would we find ourselves living in the way of Jesus towards the stranger, towards
towards the foreigner, towards the person that we have yet to meet and need to know better. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.